0: Ted Audio Collective. This archival episode of Design Matters
1: originally dropped in December of 2022. Building bad habits is often like pretty frictionless. It's like somewhat easy. You know, nobody, the way that we all talk about building good habits where we're like, oh man, I just need to get myself to go to the gym. Nobody says that about like eating donuts. Nobody says, oh man, if I could just get myself to eat more donuts. You know, like we don't talk
0: about it that way. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, James Clear talks about building good habits. Your habits are
1: how you embody a particular identity. Even if they're small, I think that makes them particularly powerful.
0: Hi, I'm Roman Mars, host of 99%
1: Invisible. It's a podcast about all the thought that goes into things most people don't even think about. You're going to see stories everywhere. Follow and listen to 99% Invisible wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Okay, so you have a few bad habits. Maybe you bite your nails. Maybe you drink too much, too often. Oh, and cheese. Is there too much cheese in your life? I know there is in mine. And don't get me started on flossing. And yet, it's hard. It's really, really, really hard to break a bad habit. And it's just as hard to get a good habit going. Or is it? James Clear thinks it's doable, and he wrote a blockbuster, best-selling book about it titled Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. James Clear is a writer, a speaker, and an entrepreneur, and he's here to tell us about his life, his career, and how we maybe can stop sabotaging our efforts with insurmountable goals. James Clear, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Hey, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And I think cheese is only a good habit. I I can't (laughs) categorize that as bad. That sounds great. Well, we're starting
0: out on a very good, good, in a very good place. James, I understand that you tend to geek out about ultralight travel bags.
1: (laughs) Why? um, I don't know. In my 20s, I like had this urge where I really wanted to see the world and get out. I had never been abroad until I was 23, I think. Eventually after I graduated college, I got a passport and started wanting to travel. And um, I was really into photography at the time. And so I was doing a lot of like landscape photography or street photography in different places. I can remember one uh, trip in particular where I landed in Morocco and I was in Marrakech and I was taking some pictures and hanging out and doing some stuff. And then a few days later I went to Casablanca and I got off the train. It was like maybe four o'clock or something or three o'clock. And for some reason, I wasn't able to get to my hotel quickly and the sun was setting soon. And that's the hour when the light is best for photos. And so I wanted to take pictures for the next couple hours before the sun was gone, but I didn't have time to drop my bags off. And I was so happy that I had figured out how to travel with just one bag because it would have been a ridiculous scene for me to be carting around, wheeling all this luggage around, trying to take photos for a couple hours. So that was probably the trip where I was like, oh, it's definitely worth the, the
0: effort to try to figure out how to travel with just one bag. Let's go back in time a little. You were born and raised in Hamilton, Ohio. Your mom is a nurse. Your dad played professional baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals in the minor leagues, and still live in the same house you grew up in. Used to live in Ohio as well. Why Ohio?
1: Um, I mean, the main answer I think is family. Uh, you know, the, the main answer is the people I love live here. But. I like Ohio too. Like I, I have pride in being from here, my parents' house, which they do still live in um, it's about five minutes away from my grandparents house. So I spent a large portion of my childhood running around on my grandparents' farm. They both live maybe 45 minutes north of Cincinnati. It's a little more built up now than when I was growing up. I, I grew up, it was much more rural being outdoors and running around the fields and uh, feeding the cows. And yeah, like that was all, that was all part of how I grew up and I, I loved being outside there. I have a, a cabin in the woods uh, now too that I you know love to go out to, and I have dreams of taking my grandkids out there the way that I spent time on on my grandparents' farm. Yeah, I don't know. It, it occupies a warm place in my heart, and I'm I'm proud to be from Hamilton and proud to be from Ohio, and uh, all of the people I love are still here. So uh, I spend a lot of time here.
0: Well, having cows then makes sense regarding your love of cheese.
1: That's right. (laughs) I didn't think about that, but it started early.
0: (laughs) Um, Now, I know that every Sunday you and your family and all of your cousins and extended family would go over to your grandparents' house and your grandmother would make dinner every Sunday for 18 people.
1: I know she was a saint.
0: What kinds of things would she make for eighteen people? That's like a Thanksgiving dinner every week.
1: It was a lot of spaghetti, a lot of a lot of pasta. A lot of the time, lasagna and spaghetti are the two that I remember the most. Every Sunday, we would go to church in the morning, and then we would go over to my grandparents for breakfast. So my my grandma would cook us breakfast. That was just my immediate family and and uh, my grandparents. That's like you know eight, seven or eight people. Then we go home for like four hours, and then at like three we would come back to their house and then she would cook dinner for like 18 people.
0: You're right. She's a saint.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I i mean, I, you know, I say that jokingly because of all the work and everything that she, she did for us. She actually passed away recently. She passed away uh, within the last year and some of our extended family, some cousins of hers and stuff came down from Columbus for the funeral. And one of them said that he looked at his coworkers uh, before he drove down that day. And he's like, I'm telling you, she's the sweetest lady I've ever met you know i think we all have people in our lives that we love to say things like that about but she actually is the one person i know that when you said things like that at her funeral you weren't just like being nice about it and kind of glossing over the the tougher parts of her life i truly don't know if i ever heard her criticize someone which is just an insane thing to be able to say about somebody wow she's almost like too nice about it it was one of those things where it was like Truly, if I didn't have something nice to say, I just didn't say anything at all. Wow. She was a special lady, and uh, I'm fortunate to have had her in my life.
0: James, I understand that when you were four years old, you saw a cowboy on TV (laughs) and decided right then and there you wanted to have a lasso and swing it. So you took a screwdriver and tied it to a piece of string and swung it around your head in the backyard. This resulted in your cutting your eyelid and getting your first stitches and... Fast forward as you're growing up to play sport, you're playing sports and they had a significant role in your life. You swam, you played basketball and football, but because you were always getting hit in football, you switched to baseball. And I was (laughs) wondering, especially as we'll go into what happened in in high school while you were playing sports, I'm wondering, are you accident-prone? Yeah. You know, it's funny.
1: I don't think of myself as being like super reckless or anything, but I don't know. I have, I have a lot of, uh, experiences with stitches. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to make a lasso and I thought I'll tie a screwdriver on the string. That'll do the trick. And, uh, my mom oh. was in the kitchen and looked out the window and saw me just whirling this around my head. Um, I was really lucky though. And actually that's kind of a theme throughout many of the injuries that I had is that Uh, it was bad, but it could have been a lot worse. Mm. Um, I cut my eyelid, but not my eye. And, uh, I ended up getting stitches on, on my eyelid and kind of sewing that back together. And then later, I you know I've I've had stitches all over the place. I cut my knee open diving on a broken swing set, and um, you know then of course I had my injuries in high school. I had a set of blinds fall on my head one time. I ended up getting like twenty staples across my head for that. So oh my god, I don't know. I don't. I really don't identify as someone who's accident prone. But that probably sounds ridiculous to anybody listening to to me list all these off right now.
0: Well, it's interesting because all of your accidents really have something to do with being sports-minded or athletic, I I am actually accident-prone, but I'm the kind of person that trips over nothing, falls over a step, uh, bangs into a wall or a door. I mean, all of my stitches, and I have a bunch, are all self-inflicted wounds that I I encountered by being clumsy.
1: (laughs) I I think the way that I would describe it for me is I'm very hard on things. Uh, My Hmm. wife is constantly complaining about that. I'm like, Banging doors, plopping onto couches, cracking, you know, frames of things. Like, I'm just like, I'm always, always very hard on things. I don't buy nice cars for myself because I know that I'm just going to...
0: Same, exactly.
1: I need something that I can be rough with. I guess I am that way with my body occasionally too.
0: Yeah, I am the same way. I My wife has a gorgeous car. I will not even try to drive it. I insisted on getting a Jeep. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there you go. That seems right.
0: So let's talk about what happened in high school, because I do think it is a really defining moment in how you became who you are. Like your dad, you wanted to play professional baseball on the last day of your sophomore year of high school while playing with your classmates. You were hit in the face, right between the eyes, with a flying baseball bat that slipped out of the hands of one of your uh, team members and rotated through the air, sort of like a helicopter, into your face. The hit broke your nose and your ethmoid bone, which is the bone behind your nose, deep inside your skull. It shattered both your eye sockets. Cognitively, you didn't know what year it was. You lost the ability to breathe, and you began to have seizures. What, what yeah. happened next? I mean, this is this, you start your book and we'll talk a lot about your book. You start your book with this chapter, which resulted in my sort of just not putting the book down till pretty much I finished. It is so riveting um, and so unexpected to start a book in this way.
1: Yeah. I guess that was a good call by my publisher. I don't like writing about myself. So I really, I like push back multiple times. and was like, I just don't think it needs to be about me. Like I'd really prefer to just make it straightforward and you know about building better habits but they ended up winning out and they're like this has to be in there so um it seems like people have found it interesting i uh yeah it was a it was a hard moment for me i don't know it's it's strange to think about in retrospect it's hard to fully parse the experience i was obviously very out of it for a while I ended up being put into a medically induced coma that night. Uh, I ended up waking back up the next day, and as you said, I had you know multiple facial fractures. I ended up go- I went back into surgery about a week later to get a lot of that fixed up. Which interestingly, that hurt more than the initial injury was the re-breaking of my nose or the resetting of a lot of the bones. The big thing is the road to recovery was so long. I couldn't Mm. drive a car for the next nine months. I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line at physical therapy. All I really wanted to do was just get back and play some baseball and be a normal, you know, teenage kid. But it just, it took a long time. And I did not have any language for describing what I was going through at the time. I I never would have said like, oh, I was just trying to get 1% better. You know, I was just trying to find a way to, you know, improve. But that was a time in my life when I had to practice the art of small changes or the art of uh, little improvements, because that's all I could really handle. You know, I I just had to find something to be positive about or some small improvement to focus on and then wake up the next day and try to do it again. And eventually, you know, I was able to make my way back. It's funny thinking back on it now. I don't remember being really in a bad mood about it. I I remember being like, I, I don't know, fairly positive or happy. And I think to your point earlier about what's special about Ohio or what's special about being here, it was the people that helped me do that. I mean, my grandpa was a very positive person. My parents are very positive people. And I think their influence was really dramatic and important during that time. And even though my physical progress was slow, mentally, you know, I, I stayed in a, I had a good attitude and I felt pretty good throughout the process. And it was, it was a long road back, but um, I don't look back on it like begrudgingly.
0: The hospital that you were flown to was the same hospital your sister went to for her cancer treatment Mm. after she was diagnosed with leukemia 10 years prior. And your parents met with the same priest they had met with back then as well. Was there ever a moment where you were in danger of losing your life?
1: So there was a period of time where I started to lose the ability to do basic functions, swallowing, breathing. I had a couple seizures, as I mentioned. And then at one point, I lost the ability to breathe on my own. So I think that probably qualifies. Uh, they had to intubate me. And then they were pumping breasts into me by hand for a little bit because uh, at around that same time, I was being transferred to the helicopter. The helipad was across the street. So we kind of were in this ridiculous situation where I obviously was told all of this after the fact. I'm being wheeled across the street and we kind of are hitting like bumps on the sidewalk. The intubation apparatus popped out. So they had to re- reattach that. Um, And then we're trying to get me on the helicopter at the same time. So I think the nurses and doctors did a great job managing the whole situation, Uh, but I was in a very unstable condition for a window of time there.
0: You were placed in a coma, as you mentioned, and when you woke up, you told one of the nurses that you had lost the ability to smell. Um, She then recommended that you blow your nose. What, what happened after that?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it, it seems like a decent idea. I was just like, I can't smell anything. And she was like, well, you have, a, you know, all kinds of gunk and blood and all sorts of stuff in there. So let's like clear your your nasal cavity a little bit. So see if you can blow that out, which it didn't hurt that bad, even though my nose was broken. But when I blew, I forced air through the cracks in my shattered eye socket. And so then my left eye bulged out of the socket. It was kind of like halfway out So it just, you know, the situation just became more complicated. I ended up having double vision for weeks. You know, the doctors all had to confer to try to figure out what to do. They decided not to operate. They said they were pretty sure that the air was going to seep back out of the eye socket and my eye would gradually recede. And that did happen. It, It took about a month for it to go back to kind of the normal position, but it did slowly make its way back.
0: Pretty sure is not very confidence inducing.
1: Yeah, right. At, that, at, the, at the time, <laughs> that probably didn't feel as good as uh, as I was hoping, but um, we made it. We made it back. We we made our way out. It was a yeah. It was a really ridiculous 24 hour stretch.
0: You said that after the injury, you were trying to regain some control over your life. What did that look like for you?
1: I think it all started with like focusing on what you can control. So I mentioned like physically, those physical therapy sessions or whatever, you know, whatever exercise I was being asked to do, can I do this? Well, you know, can I try to give a good effort and like do this successfully and have a good day today? So it started with a lot of that stuff. I had always enjoyed school and always like taken pride in getting good grades or, you know, in being a good student. I kind of, it's funny as an entrepreneur now, a lot of my entrepreneurial friends really are anti-school or I don't know, are down on school or didn't have a good experience. I feel like the opposite. I It was kind of like a game to me and I enjoyed trying to figure out how to play the game well. So I didn't know if I, you know, like I I, I have every indication that my intelligence is the same, but is it like, let's see. And so I I felt good about being able to, you know, like study in the same way or get a good grade on a test or, you know, just kind of like make my way back there. I do think that helped me kind of gain some confidence and feel like, you know what, maybe I can't move the way I want yet, or maybe I still have a little bit of double vision or I can't drive a car yet, but it seems like everything's going to be okay. I'm thinking clearly and, you know, like I'll, I'll get there eventually. So I think study habits played a role in it. And then eventually, once I was able to start playing baseball again about a year later, then I started to focus more on the physical and the athletic part of it. And I was, I was never as good as my dad. So, you know, I didn't I didn't end up playing professionally or anything like that. But I do looking back on my career, I feel like I was able to fulfill my potential. And that was a pretty long arc. Um, you know, like it took me probably a solid five or six years of continuous improvement and just getting a little bit better each year. You know, I was I barely got to play high school baseball. I was coming off the bench uh, my first year um, in college. My sophomore year, I ended up being a starter. My junior year, I was all conference. My senior year, I was an All American. So I just kind of like gradually kept making these uh, little progressions, and. That was very confidence inspiring. I had a coach who told me one time, a basketball coach, that confidence is just displayed ability. Hmm. And I felt like each year that went on, I was displaying my ability a little bit more and more. And I was gaining confidence in myself and feeling like, yeah, I have every reason in the world to work really hard this offseason or to show up again
0: because I have proof of it. I sort of see confidence as the successful repetition of any endeavor.
1: I like that. The successful repetition of any endeavor. It You know, it's like... That coach that told me that, that confidence is displayed ability. it's kind of like, yeah, if you wanna feel confident about making free throws, go out there and practice. And once you knock down 10 in a row, you're gonna feel a lot better about it. You know, exactly. the successful repetition of it is going to breed confidence. It is kind of this interesting thing. I think a lot of the time in life, we talk ourselves out of attempting things. We decide that I'm not ready yet. I just don't feel confident in it. I feel like I need to learn more. I feel like I need to develop my skills. But the confidence comes after the fact, not before. You need the willingness to try, and then the confidence arises after the fact.
0: How did you manage being back on the baseball field? How did, or for me, it would have been, I don't know if it was for you, but that first day back on the field, holding your mitt up to catch hmm. a ball, were you afraid of getting hit again?
1: That's interesting. You know, I actually, looking back, that's a great question. Looking back, I had a couple of advantages that I didn't really think about. So the first is, I actually got hurt in gym class, not in a game. So we were playing baseball, but it wasn't an actual game. And secondly, I got hit by a bat, but I was a pitcher. So I I didn't have to pick up a bat and get in the batter's box that often. I was just standing on the mound pitching. And so when I was playing the game, I was not in the same situation as when I was injured, which is an interesting uh. thing looking back on it. And so I didn't really have that very much. I didn't have this like... Fear of playing baseball, if anything, I was just excited to get back out there and and get back to it. I'm not the kind of person that worries very much, maybe, maybe to my detriment sometimes, but like I'm, I'm not that kind of mindset. I just was able to chalk it up to like, listen, this was a freak accident. And, you know, like sometimes you get unlucky in life and you're unlucky that day and yeah, and then you just kind of move on.
0: You got a full scholarship to go to Denison University where you majored in biomechanics. Um, Why biomechanics? What were you imagining you were going to do professionally at that point? Oh,
1: man, I wasn't imagining anything. The only thing I wanted to do in college was play baseball. Um, But I liked school and I was a good student. And looking back, I uh, was able to kind of hack the system to my benefit. So I don't have any entrepreneurs in my family. I didn't have anybody to look to. I wasn't thinking oh, I'll be an entrepreneur someday. And I don't even have really any at that time. I didn't have any close friends who were, you know, entrepreneurial or whatever. But when I went to college, I looked at like all the majors that were there and I was interested in some stuff. I, I was a science guy, so I was like interested in biology and physics. I took some chemistry classes. I was like kind of playing in that sphere anyway. And then my sophomore year, I heard, I don't even remember where that you could design your own major and i was like huh i didn't even know that was a thing and so i looked into it a little bit more i just looked at the course catalog and i was like i like these physics classes and i like these anatomy classes and i like these biology classes i've already taken a couple of these chemistry classes and then i just put it all out on the piece of paper and i was like what would this cor- what would a major like this be called and biomechanics was like the closest thing that i could think of and it it, it applied pretty well I pitched it to the Academic Affairs Council and they were like, yeah, sure. So um, looking back, that's a pretty entrepreneurial thing to do, to be like, oh, I don't like any of the options that you have, I'll make my own. But uh, I didn't identify as an entrepreneur at that time, but it's kind of cool to connect the dots looking backward and being like, oh, you were sort of always on this path. You, You like creating things, you like kind of optimizing
0: things, you like creating your own experience. You then went on to Ohio State for your MBA. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of the St. Gallen Symposium when you were there?
1: Yeah. So uh, to the point that I just made a few minutes ago where I said all I really wanted to do was play baseball, but I liked school and I was, I was good at school. I hadn't thought too much about what I was going to do after Denison. And my default answer was always, I'll go to med school. I thought about doing that. And then I looked at a PhD program. I applied for a Fulbright grant that I didn't get. Uh, so then I was kind of sitting there. And I was like, well, maybe I'll go and get my MBA Not because I really knew anything about it. I had never had like a, you know, real corporate job or anything just because everybody said like, yeah, business knowledge, that's important. Like you should, you know, you should know how that works. And then that'll like always be relevant. I ended up getting a good scholarship. So it made the decision easy. But what I really need was time to think. I needed like two years to figure out what am I actually going to do next? So I went there and I took the classes and occasionally these opportunities would come across that they would email out to the class and there was this one called the saint Gallen symposium that was a conference that was in switzerland and as i had mentioned previously i had never been abroad at that point so i was like man this is an essay competition and if you get selected if your essay gets chosen you get to go to switzerland well that sounds kind of cool i did actually something that now i use this strategy all the time and or have used it all the time over the last 10 years building my business which is basically like looking at best practices and trying to figure out what parts of those transfer to your own skill set and experience or reverse engineering, I guess we could call it. So the symposium had all the previous winners listed on the website and their essays. And so I downloaded all the essays from like the previous 10 years and read them all. And I looked to see how many references did each one have? How long was each one? um, Was there any similarity in structure, like in the way that they made their argument? And I did actually end up finding some like common themes that it it appeared the selection committee liked. And so when I wrote my article, I had that number of references, and I used that structure, and I you know like wrote with that amount of length and all of that. And uh, anyway, long story short, the essay got selected. Ultimately, I actually ended up going two years. So the MBA program was a two-year program, and I attended the first year, and then the second year, uh, my essay ended up being selected as the winner. And the prize was $10,000. That was more money than I had ever made before. So I, you know, I was getting ready to graduate and suddenly I had $10,000 in the bank account and I was like, you know what, maybe I'll try to give it a go and try to like make my own thing. Maybe I'll try to to start a a business. So that was the money that kind of like I lived off of for the first probably six to eight months while I was trying to figure things out and and start my own thing. And I I really don't know at this point, I'm kind of like, man, I'm so wired this way, I probably would have ended up an entrepreneur somehow, but I don't know how it would have happened without that essay. Uh, I probably would have had to go get a regular job for a while and then figure out some exit plan.
0: So when you started your own business, what was the business?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, my first ideas, my first attempts were like really sad attempts at a business. I, the very first thing I did was I paid some, I took some of that $10,000 that I got paid I think I spent 1500 bucks on getting an iPhone app built and it like let you put, this is, you know, this is like pre Instagram. This is a while ago. It let you put captions on photos and filters on photos and stuff. It didn't have any kind of social media component or anything, but it was just like a photo editing app. It was pretty bad. Uh, you know, looking back on it, it wasn't, it wasn't very well executed. And I put it on the app store cause I was hearing all these stories about people launching apps and making all this money. And I just thought if you build it, they will come. And I built it and nobody came. And that was a good lesson for me. It was an expensive one because I had just burned through like 15% of my cash. But I needed to learn that you need to have an audience. You need to have a, an ability to market, an ability to launch a product. I, I had no way of getting the word out. I didn't know how to get it in front of people. And so that experience forced me to go back to the drawing board and learn: like, how do you get an audience? How do you how would I how do I get this in front of people's eyeballs? And I started reading more and more about email lists and building an email list and starting a blog and all of that. And I started to go down that path. As I did over the next year or two, I started some other websites, some of which were other bad business ideas. I, I actually I bought puppypresent.com at one point. And um, good name. (laughs) the idea was that my girlfriend, now my wife, you know, she loved puppies like many people. And I was like, what if you could have breeders rent out time with their puppies and you could just like buy it as a gift, you know, you could buy a puppy present and be like, Hey, for your birthday, I got you two hours with these puppies. Let's go play with them. I thought it was a decent idea, but all the breeders I talked to hated it. They were like, wait, you just want to play with the dogs, but you don't want to buy them. And I was like, yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, so uh, there were a lot of little harebrained things like that that I tried that just never panned out. And it took about two years before I started to find my footing. I was doing some web design gigs in the background to make money. You know, try, I had to pay the bill somehow while I was waiting to, to have a business that was actually spitting off some cash. Eventually, I found my way to writing at what is now jamesclear.com. So I started in September of 2010 was when I did that iPhone app thing. And then November of 2012 was the first article on JamesClear.com. That's one of the biggest inflection points in my life was the, the choice to, you could look at it at different levels, the choice to become an entrepreneur, the choice to start JamesClear.com. the choice to start writing rather than, I don't know, paying people to build iPhone apps, but setting out on the entrepreneurial path has been one of the biggest inflection points that I've had. And, uh, it took a long time. It was a really slow burn, you know, like there was nothing sexy or glamorous about those first two years where I was struggling and didn't even have a idea that was working well. And then there also wasn't anything sexy about the first like three years of JamesClear.com where it basically wasn't making any money. But eventually I got a book deal and, um, you know, Tom Habits came out and now, you know, now it's great. Um, but it just, it took a long time. It was like five years of struggle before anything really hit.
0: And I remember when I first became aware of your writing and saw how hard you were working. I was very impressed with how dedicated you were and are, but especially before you were atomic, so to speak. Those first
1: couple of years, the habit that kind of launched my career was that I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday. And I, I did that for three years. But what gave
0: you this sense before you go on? I just, I'm sorry to interrupt because this is my million dollar question for you. Okay. (laughs) What gave you the sense that you could make a business by writing twice a week?
1: Well, I had a couple people who were like proofs of concept. I didn't know them, but I, I had a couple people that I looked at. So this is, you know, I was in grad school 2008 to 2010, just kind of like stewing on these entrepreneurial ideas. There were the kind of the A-list bloggers around that time. Two of them. One was Leo Babalta. at Zen Habits, who Leo's, you know, still writing writing now. And he was a huge site at the time. And I was interested in Habits. I, you know, I hadn't written anything about it yet. I just thought, hey, this site's kind of cool. This is interesting. This guy's making a living. And I think he had six kids. And I was like, (laughs) somehow he's figuring this out and he's writing about Habits. I was like, I don't have any kids. Just, it's just me. Like, I barely have a bedroom, you know? Like, I, could probably, I can probably figure out how to, how to do one-sixth of this. Um, so uh, Leo was definitely an early inspiration. And then Chris Guillebeau was also writing, and Chris is, you know, still doing his thing now, too. He was an early inspiration, too, because uh, I mentioned I was really into travel and photography and stuff, and Chris had this whole travel thing that he was really all about. But also Chris was the one who was writing every Monday and Thursday. That was just kind of his cadence. Leo, I think wrote even more frequently, Matt. I think he wrote three or four times a week or something. But I actually can remember one article that Chris wrote. I don't, I don't even remember like the title of it or whatever, but I remember reading it and I was in grad school and I thought, man, I feel like I could, I feel like I could do this. Like, I feel, I feel like I could write something that's as good as that. And so then I decided to try one and it was way worse than what Chris had written. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, had to be honest with myself. And I was like, this is much harder than I thought it was. Like, it was a really interesting lesson where I was like, if it looks easy, they're probably putting in a lot more work than you think. Oh, yeah. And the better somebody is at their job, the easier it often looks. Anyway, I, I had to, you know, a little bit of humble pie there and like sit back and be like, okay, I need to start giving a better effort. But when I settled on that Monday, Thursday schedule... I did it partially because it felt like this is a cadence that I can actually stick to. You know, like this is something I could actually – I can't do five days a week. I, You know, I might not even be able to do three days a week, but I think I could do two.
0: I know people like Maria Popova just astonish me that she can oh. do it every single day. Yeah, it's absurd. Her
1: <laughs> output for – I think she – yeah, I, I saw somewhere on her site she said she's published it – it was something it seemed impossible. It was like 60 million words or something. I was like, how is that even <laughs> – Doable. She's a very the,
0: dear friend of yeah. mine, and I know she writes every single one of those letters. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's just yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, but so I felt like I could stick to it. And I have a very high quality bar and it was really hard for me to let myself be like, oh I'll just I'll just put it out even if I feel like it's just okay. I just couldn't I couldn't get myself to do it. So I thought, well, twice a week is enough that I could spend 20 hours on an article right or even like 30 hours on an article. I often did that for the first year or two, where I would say the average article was probably 8 to 10 hours, and it was frequent that I would spend 15 to 20. The fastest I ever did one in was like four or six hours, something like that. Uh, So it was consistent enough that I felt like it was going to add up and compound, but it was infrequent enough that I had the space to do what I felt like was good work.
0: Did you or do you ever suffer from writer's block or not knowing what to write about?
1: So I had this moment where I was writing for a few years and the site was growing and I hit 100,000 subscribers. And for some reason, that number kind of got in my head a little bit. And I was like, "Okay, now a lot of people are paying attention. Now it has to be really good. And so I went through this little phase where rather than just telling myself, hey, it's going well, just keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Rather than doing that, I thought I need to be more perfect now. So I thought, okay, what I need to do is spend even more time writing, more time revising it, more time working it out, more time trying to like craft a really great sentence. Interestingly, the writing actually got worse, not better. What I came to realize is that if I ever feel like I'm running low on ideas, what I need is not to write more. What I need is to read more. Mm. And it's kind of like uh, driving a car where you got to stop sometimes and fill the car up with gas. And the point of having a car is not to sit at the gas station all day and just keep pumping gas into the tank and never produce anything or never go anywhere. But the point is also not to just drive until you run out of gas and then you're stuck on the side of the road. And so you need this balance between the two. And reading is like filling up the tank for me and writing is like going on an adventure and they both feed each other and I I need both of them. And what I'm really on is usually when I'm reading something really great. It's like so good. I can like barely make it through a page or two without taking a bazillion notes. And then I'm like, "Ah, I got to put this book down and just write about this right now. And then, you know, the ideas kind of like take off on the page. So reading and writing are much more intertwined than I think I initially realized. And almost all of my good ideas are downstream from something great that I read.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we are already doing right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and now you wanna tackle another. Or maybe now that you're taking your supplements every morning, you want to actually start eating breakfast too. Therapy helps you find your strengths so you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make the changes that really stick. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash designmatters today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash designmatters. I love art. I love looking at art, collecting art, and showing it off in my home. And FrameBridge helps me affordably custom frame all my art. FrameBridge has a curated selection of frame styles and design experts to make it fun and easy to choose the perfect frame for every piece. Their pricing is fair and transparent and is based upon the size of your piece, so you know exactly what you'll pay up front. Ordering online is simple and convenient. You can choose to upload a digital photo for them to print and frame, or you can mail your piece with a secure prepaid packaging provided by FrameBridge. And if you prefer to buy your frames in person, you can. FrameBridge has stores in New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Chicago, and Atlanta. Visit a store and you can get one-on-one expert design advice and see their collection of frame styles in person. Visit framebridge.com or a retail store to custom frame just about anything. You've said that everything you write about is mostly a reminder to yourself of what you should be doing. Was that how your specialty in understanding habits first came about?
1: Uh, yeah, it's funny to call it a specialty. I I feel like, you know, my readers and I are peers and I write about this stuff because I struggle with all the same things everybody else struggles with. You know, it's like, hey, have you procrastinated? Sure. All the time. You know, are you uh, do you start something and then you're inconsistent? Yes, absolutely. Have you, uh, you know, focused too much on the goal and not enough on the process for sure. Like I struggle with all that stuff like everybody else does. And so I wrote about it because it was relevant to my own life. I was interested in trying to figure it out a little bit more and apply it. And I was just kind of curious about it. And so for that reason, because I was interested and because it excited me, I think the writing was better as a result. Now it's probably worth noting that in those early years, like that first year or so, I wrote about a lot of other stuff too. You know, I wrote about how to have better squat form in the gym and how the medical system in America and you know, like all kinds of stuff. And the readers didn't seem to care about those as much. And so (laughs) I kind of like followed my nose a little bit and I was like, you know what? Every time I write about habits or strategy or making better choices or being creative or productive, those are the topics that the audience also likes and that I like. There's a lot of other stuff that I like that people are like, well, that's great, but you can kind of keep it to yourself. And so for those things, I just kind of like, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll journal about that and not publish it. (laughs) So I gradually kind of found my footing in my area of expertise or specialty, as you say. And it was, it was mostly just like trial and error, but. All the time, whatever I was writing about it, I tried to make it something that I was excited about or that I was interested in personally.
0: I think that's what makes it so interesting. I work with a woman that helps me with my research. Um, her name is Emily Wyland, and she didn't know about you before I started working on the show. And initially, she was surprised because she knows that I'm not somebody that is particularly interested in the self-help genre, so to speak. But as soon as she started researching you, as soon as she started reading your book, as soon as we started talking about the way in which you approach what you share, she completely understood why I was so intrigued and excited about talking with you. That's cool. You have a very unique way of sharing information with people that also happens to be something that could be helpful. I have never in my life recommended what would be considered a self-help book to my wife, but I am insisting that she read Atomic Habits because I think <laughs> she will benefit from it so much I and I'll keep take no I'll responsibility you posted for how that. this
1: ends up. I I yeah, i uh, I hope that she enjoys it.
0: Well, I've already started sneaking in the, some of the the techniques like I'm Trojan horsing it in <laughs> because she so needs it. <laughs>
1: That's good. That's good. I am... Um, I think it's important to be a practitioner of the ideas and not just a writer of them or a theorizer of them. Yes. And I do think that if you're forced to practice the ideas, if they're things you actually use in your daily life, there's gonna be a better quality to the writing. And then also you come to appreciate how difficult it is to make any kind of progress in the world or to create something new or to put this idea into practice. I think because I have struggled with all of these common habit pitfalls, like everybody else has had, I think I am in a better position to say something compelling about it because it's like, yeah, I like, I know what this is like, you know, I've, I've struggled through all this too. It also gives me more confidence in the ideas. If I can be like, yes, I've actually used them. And I'm not saying it's going to be a perfect fit for everybody. And I don't think it's going to work in all scenarios, but I know that it worked in this scenario. And so I feel better about sharing it my kind of approach now is that i don't there is no one way to build better habits there's no like single strategy to follow but there are a lot of tools that you can use and my job is to kind of lay all the tools out on the table and say hey here's a wrench and here's a hammer and here's a screwdriver." And your job is to say, you know what, I think for my life or for my situation, the wrench feels like the right fit or the hammer might be better uh, for this particular experience or this particular situation. And I think if I can do that well, if I can lay all the tools out and give everybody a full toolkit to work with, we're all in a better position to make some of these changes. Doesn't mean that it's going to be easy all the time or even that it's going to work all the time, but I feel like I have a better appreciation for having a big suite of tools uh, because I've had to practice it.
0: Well, a lot of people agree. In 2018, you brought your book, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones into the world. In the years since the book was published, you have sold over 9 million copies worldwide. You've been on the New York Times bestseller list, I looked it up this week, for 154 weeks. 154 weeks, listeners. It's, your book has been translated into over 50 languages. Your newsletter is sent out every week to more than 2 million subscribers, and you also travel all over the world with your super sleek bags, giving inspiring <laughs> speeches. Congratulations, James.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's been a wild ride, you know, and I, I don't think it's reasonable for any author to expect those kind of outcomes. It just struck a chord, um, and I've been very fortunate, but... uh Yeah, I don't really know what else to say other than I'm glad that people are finding it useful. I think ultimately the only way a book can grow like that is if it's word of mouth. You know, it's far outpaced my ability to sell it or to tell people about it. And what I tell myself when I go to sleep at night is people are finding this useful. You know, like it's growing because people are telling other people about it. And the only reason they're telling people about it is because they find it helpful themselves. And that certainly feels good. It feels feels gratifying. And I habits have been written about for a long time you know they've been around long before i was here and people be writing about it long after i'm gone and i am just adding a very small piece to the collective knowledge of humanity on the topic you know i'm not really saying much that's very new my hope is just that maybe when you read it you're like you know i never quite heard it put that way before or maybe this gives me like a little bit different line of attack than i had previously And perhaps that, like, unlocks, you know, an opportunity for you that maybe wasn't there before. And, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm really grateful to all the readers.
0: Yeah, I'm only going to push back a little bit here, James, because I do think what you're writing about is new in that it's your perspective, which Hmm. is doesn't have any shame attached to it. There's no berating. It's just very straightforward, very relatable, and really, really helpful. So let's talk a little bit about habits. Um, I have two fairly basic questions for my listeners that may have not read your book, maybe the two or three people out there in the world, or your website. So I, I, just two easy questions that I think will help frame the rest of my questions. First, what is a habit? Well, if you talk to an
1: academic or a researcher, they're going to say something like a habit is a automatic or mindless behavior that, you know, you do without even really thinking about it. So brushing your teeth or tying your shoes or every time you pick up a pair of barbecue togs, you tap them together twice, you know, like stuff that you don't even really think about that much. I think there's another definition, another way to describe a habit, which is it's a behavior that's tied to a particular context. So you can never have a human outside of an environment where you're gonna live your whole life in some some type of environment. And your behaviors are often linked to that environment. So like your couch at 7 p.m. is linked to the habit of watching Netflix, for example, mm-hmm. or your kitchen table at 7 a.m. is linked to the habit of drinking tea and journaling. And I think that reveals something important about habits, which is the environment plays a pretty big role in how they're shaped and how they're triggered and so on. I think the the strict academic answer is it's a pretty mindless automatic routine or behavior that's not how we usually talk about it in daily conversation like if i were to ask you what are some habits you want to build you might say writing every day or going to the gym four days a week and writing is never going to be mindless the way that like brushing your teeth might be but i know what you mean when you say it you mean i want it to be this regular practice this ritual and so on so it kind of depends on how academic we want to get about the definition but i think we could just say most of us know what we mean when we say habit we mean something i do regularly something i do frequently something i do consistently
0: so my second basic question is what do we get wrong about habits it's a good question i'm not sure
1: that i think different people get different things wrong so i don't know that there is one single answer um there are some common pitfalls that you see people fall into a lot like one common pitfall is biting off more than you can chew or starting too big i mean this happens to everybody it's happened to me a bazillion times You get excited, you get, especially if you're an ambitious person, you start thinking about the changes you wanna make. And then you're like, oh, you know, like, let me find the perfect workout program. And it's like an hour long and you're gonna do it five days a week. And instead it might be more useful just to develop the habit of going to the gym for five minutes, like four days a week, just become the kind of person who masters the art of showing up. But we often resist that type of small action because it feels like, well, this isn't enough to get me the results that I want. So that's probably not even worth it. But there are levels to this whole thing. And if you can master the art of showing up, then you're in a position to optimize, to improve, to advance. So that's kind of a big part of my philosophy, um, is make it easy to show up. The other common, uh, maybe pitfall or mistake, the things that people get wrong about it. I think one thing that we get wrong is we don't look at our bad habits enough. We don't think about what they can teach us for building good habits. So let me give you an example. Most behaviors in life produce multiple outcomes across time. So broadly speaking, there's an immediate outcome and there's an ultimate outcome. For bad habits, the immediate outcome is often pretty favorable. You know, like it's enjoyable to, to the immediate outcome of eating a donut is great. It's sweet, it's sugary it's tasty, it's enjoyable. It's only like if you keep eating donuts for a year or two that you get kind of unfavorable outcomes, right? Or smoking is the classic bad habit example. Well, the immediate outcome of smoking might be that you get to socialize with friends outside the office or you reduce stress on the way home from work. So the immediate outcome might be favorable. It's only the ultimate outcome five or ten years later that's unfavorable. But building bad habits is often like pretty frictionless. It's like somewhat easy. You know, nobody the way that we all talk about building good habits where we're like, oh, man, I just need to get myself to go to the gym nobody says that about like eating donuts nobody says oh man if i could just get myself to eat a, more donuts you know like we don't talk about it that way and i think there's a lesson baked in there why is that if we can start to look and maybe unravel our bad habits a little bit more we notice there are behaviors that are often really convenient they're behaviors that are often immediately rewarding There are behaviors that are often obvious and occupy space in our environments and the rooms and and buildings that we work in all the time and you can copy and paste those lessons onto building good habits. You can try to find ways to make your good habits immediately rewarding. You can try to make them more visible in uh, the environment. You can try to find ways to um, make those frictionless and convenient. And the more that you do those things, the more you're kind of putting those same forces to work for you rather than against you.
0: One of the things that I was really struck by was just in my own sort of environment and online and in advertisements, you know, you hear things like, be healthy for 30 days and then, or do this thing for 21 days and then, and you said the honest answer to how long it takes to build a habit is forever. And I'm wondering why you think it's forever.
1: Well, what I'm trying to get at there is a habit is not a finish line to be crossed. You know, it's this lifestyle to be lived. And it's not like, hey, just do this for 30 days and then you'll be a healthy person. Or just do this for 60 days and then you will be productive. You don't have to worry about it anymore. What I'm really getting at when I say like the true amount of time it takes to build a habit is forever is you're looking for a sustainable change, a non-threatening change. You're looking to integrate it into your new lifestyle, kind of build this new normal. And then once you've stuck to it for a long time and it becomes part of your natural cadence of your day, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just like, oh, this is just part of my daily routine. This is something I can stick to. And that's how habits really last. You know, this idea that like, let me start the day off by doing this 21 day sprint and then I'll be the kind of person I want to be. I, you know, I think once you unpack it that way, almost everybody realizes, well, that's not how it actually works, but that is what we're sold a lot of the time. That is what we're, you know, everybody's telling us. And so I'm just kind of pushing back on that a little bit and trying to be like, you don't really need to make these radical changes all the time. What you really need is, can we just figure out a way to live a good day today? Like, all you got to do is live one good day. And can we find a, a pattern that is sustainable, that's non-threatening, that's uh, that you can integrate into your daily routine? And then it can start to become something that, you know, this is just normal for me. It's not like I'm not reaching so much. I'm not trying to be a totally different person.
0: The part that I found to be most fascinating about your book was sort of this deep-seated, notion that our habits are how we embody a particular identity and you encourage people interested in doing this type of work to start by asking themselves who is the kind of person you want to become and what is the type of identity that you want to build and that's very intentional
1: yes yes it is intentional we often talk about habits as mattering because of the external stuff they get us. All this stuff we've, you know, just been talking about, oh, habits will help you, you know, get fit or make more money or be more productive or you know, reduce stress. And it's true, habits can help you do those things, and that's great. But the real reason that habits matter is that, as you said, they help you embody a particular identity. Every action that you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. So no. Writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And no, doing one push up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And this is why I say, like, you know, the real goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat, it's to become a meditator. You know, the real goal is not (laughs) to run a half marathon, it's to become a runner. In these cases, I'm using like labels, you know, reader or runner or meditator or whatever, but It's true for characteristics as well. I'm the type of person who finishes what they start, or I'm the type of person who shows up on time. And the more that you believe that aspect or that element of your story, the more you start to integrate that into your identity, the easier it becomes to stick to that behavior in the long run. I mean, in a sense, once it's part of your story, once it's like some aspect of yourself that you take pride in, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you see yourself to be. I mean, if you take pride in the size of your biceps, you'll never skip arm day at the gym, you know, or if you take pride in how your hair looks, you have this long hair care routine and you follow it every day. And the aspects of our identity that we take pride in or that we kind of say, yeah, this is like part of who I am. We don't have to motivate ourselves to do those behaviors in the same way. That somebody who's maybe just getting started does, you know, it's kind of like, no, this is just part of what I do this is part of how I show up. And I think that's ultimately where we're really trying to get to. It is a long process. I, I do. I like that voting metaphor because each time you do a little habit, it's like casting a vote on the pile and you kind of build up this body of evidence and no individual instance changes your belief about yourself or changes the story that you're telling. But over time, you start to tip the scales in favor of that story And this is a little bit different than what you often hear people say. You'll often hear something like, fake it till you make
0: it. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I I don't I say, make it till you make it. Just make it till you make it. Make it till you you make it. Yeah.
1: That's such a good creator phrase. You know, like, just make it till you make the blog post until you make it. Make the piece of art until you make it. Just make the thing. Just keep creating until it's there. Right. Yeah, make it fake it till you make it ask you to believe something positive by yourself, right? Yes. So it's not ultimately that terrible, but it asks you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. There's a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion, right? Like right. your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what you say you are and what you're actually doing. And behavior and beliefs are this two-way street, you know, like what you do, the actions you take each day, they influence what you think about yourself. And the mindset that you have, the beliefs that you carry, they influence the actions that you take. But my argument is to let the behavior lead the way, to make it till you make it, as you say, to start with one small action, to start with a little bit of evidence that, hey, in this moment, I was that kind of person. And eventually you have every reason in the world to believe that aspect of your story. So yes, your habits are how you embody a particular identity. And I think that makes them, even if they're small, I think that makes them particularly powerful.
0: But we can also look at the opposite and what you say about yourself often, as you mentioned, will begin to determine who you are, who you become. One of the things that I was struck by, you write about how people can walk through life in a cognitive slumber, and and I'm going to quote you here, um, blindly following the norms attached to their identity by stating things like, I'm terrible with directions, I'm not a morning person, I'm bad at remembering people's names, I'm always late, I'm not good with technology, I'm horrible at math, James, almost every one of those except the I'm always late are Actually, designations that I thought you were describing me and how I state my identity. And I, was I read coming that. coming for you in that passage. Yeah, I'm like, uh, <laughs> James is looking deep into my soul and he is telling me that I don't have to say these things about myself anymore if I don't want to be them. And that's, you know, I mean, that's what was so personal about my experience reading your book. Um, <laughs>
1: oh, and, that's and, funny. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to target you like that. No, that's I, it, right. it is interesting,
0: though, you know, like these
1: stories that we carry around, I, I didn't, I didn't think something like. Uh, I have a sweet tooth before I wrote the book. I wouldn't have thought anything about that. You know, like I love chocolate. I love caramel. <laughs> like, I sure. But um, now I look at it and I'm like, oh, each time you tell yourself that you're kind of reinforcing that identity and it becomes a little bit easier to do that thing the next time. And, you know, I am not uh, kind of an extreme sort of personality in the sense I, I don't think that means, hey, you should never eat chocolate or, you know, like you're never going to forget somebody's name again or whatever, Like I, you know, p- all that stuff's going to happen. This is just life. But I do think that it's worth asking yourself questions like, given the reality of the situation, without ignoring the facts and without ignoring the reality of what needs to be done, what's the most empowering version of a story that I could tell myself? What's the most useful version of a story that I could tell myself? Because if you're not ignoring reality, there's no sense in telling yourself a less useful version. There's no sense in telling yourself the least empowering version. But we often do that. I heard about this interesting exercise one time where they said, you know, take two sheets of paper on the first sheet. You're going to write the story of your last year or pick whatever time frame you want your last 10 years. And the only rule for this little game is that you are not allowed to say anything that isn't true. So it has to be factually true, but the first page you're going to write the story of your last 10 years, and you're only going to write it in like the least favorable way possible. And then the second page, you're going to write the story of your last 10 years and you're going to write it in the most favorable way possible. It's interesting because you're going to sit there with these two pieces of paper and there are no lies on either page. Yet, which version of these stories are we telling ourselves each day? It I don't know if you're not going to ignore reality, if you're still going to say, hey, listen, I'm still going to wrestle with the truth and like, I'll still make sure that I, I do what I need to do. I just can't see any sense in telling yourself the story that's on the first page. It doesn't make any sense to do anything other than what's going to make you feel useful, empowered, joyful, happy, fun, excited. Let's tell the version of that story and still do the things we need to do. You know, and sometimes life is hard and you still got to deal with it. But uh, we don't always do that. And I I think we would probably be in a better place if we tried to do that each day.
0: So I think a really important way of thinking about this then is that habits matter, not because they can get you better results, which they can do, but also because they can change your beliefs about who you are.
1: Yeah. I don't think this is unique necessarily to habits. Like, I'm not saying other experiences in life don't matter or that, you know, a one-off event or something doesn't make a difference. Those things do matter. It's just that over time your habits are the experiences that get repeated. Mm -hmm. And so the weight of the story starts to shift in favor of that just because of the frequency of them. Um, and everything else starts to be like, Oh, that just happened one time, or this was a blip on the radar or whatever. And so I think they are unique in their long-term ability to shape identity because day after day, week after week, you're getting these little bits of proof that, Hey, this is part of my story.
0: One of the most sort of viral aspects of your book is about how important it is to focus on building a system rather than trying to achieve a specific goal or an outcome. And you state that you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. I'm wondering if we can just deconstruct that a little bit for my listeners. What do you mean by a system?
1: So... Your goal is your desired outcome. What is your system? Your system is the collection of habits that you follow. And if there is ever a gap between your goal and your system, if there's ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your daily habits will always win. You know, almost by definition, your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current results. So. Whatever system you've been running for the last six months or year or two years, it's carried you almost inevitably to the outcomes that you have right now. In many ways, our results in life are kind of like a lagging measure, or at least to a large degree, they're a lagging measure of the habits that preceded them. So your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits even like silly stuff like the amount of clutter in your living room is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. We also badly want better results in life, but the results are not actually the thing that needs to change. You know, it's like fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves. And this doesn't mean that, you know, there are many things in life that influence outcomes. You know, I'm not saying habits are the only thing that matters. You've got luck and randomness, you have misfortune, you know, all sorts of things can befall you. But By definition, luck and randomness are not under your control and your habits are. And the only reasonable, rational approach in life is to focus on the elements of the situation that are within your control. So I think for all of those reasons, I encourage people to focus on building a system rather than worrying too much about a goal. And I totally get why this is hard. Some of it I think is just a byproduct of the way that both major media and social media works you're only going to hear about something once it's a result, you know, you're never going to see a story. That's like lady eats chicken and salad for lunch today. You know, it's only a story once lady loses hundred pounds yeah. or you're never going to see people, you know, talking about on the news, like James clear writes 500 words today. It's only a story once it's like atomic habits is a bestseller. The outcomes of success are highly visible and widely discussed. And the process of success is often invisible and hidden from view. And I think that leads us to overvaluing results and maybe undervaluing the process of the system. And so all I'm trying to get out with this is a little bit of an encouragement to say, hey, goals are great and success is awesome, but let's maybe put that on the shelf for a minute and spend most of our days focused on what collection of habits am I following? What system am am I running? And can I kind of adjust the gears of that machine a little bit and start running a better system, and that'll carry me to a different destination, naturally.
0: Um, I wanna talk about the brain and habits. You write that the primary reason the brain remembers the past is to better predict what will work in the future. And and this happens in everything. I, I remember years ago, I rearranged the furniture in my bedroom, And I had been very used to habitually walking into my bedroom in a certain way and going to my night table to find something. And suddenly, in the days after rearranging the furniture, I found myself sort of blindly walking in the wrong direction because my night table was no longer there. And it struck me how dependent we get on these habits that are unconscious and how much that impacts the way we live our days. And so how is our brain impacted by our reliance on our habits?
1: Well, it depends on how broad you want to get with this answer or how deep you want to go. You know, ultimately, every organism needs energy to survive. And anything that you can do to conserve energy or to be more efficient or effective is going to help in the survival of that species. And so your brain is looking to automate things. It's looking to figure out solutions to future problems that it won't have to think as much about. And if it doesn't have to think about that, it can shift its attention and energy to something else. And so habits save you time, they save you effort, they save you energy. And at that very basic biological level, they help you survive. Now, of course, the environment our ancestors grew up in, it was very different than what we have today. So now we have this kind of like paleolithic hardware, we've got this biology that is primed to build habits but we live in a modern society where there's all sorts of different ways to apply that brain and that kind of thinking. And so now we're building habits on social media and we're building habits in corporate workplaces and we're building habits of saving for retirement. And you know our ancestors didn't care about any of that stuff, but uh, the machinery works just as well in those situations as it did before. So ultimately, I think habits are from a biological level, they're like an energy saving process, but then in a more like practical, modern uh, way of thinking about it, They're a time-saving process and they help you become more effective and efficient in that way because you don't have to spend time thinking about what to do.
0: Well, what's so interesting about this notion of the brain sort of trying to hack these systems for us, a lot of it is done subconsciously. And when that happened in my bedroom with the night table, I began to wonder how many unconscious habits do I just obey? Because this Mm -hmm. is the way I've taught myself to view the world. And that's why this shift in identity was so intriguing to me in Mm -hmm. using these hacks to begin to start to re- work certain neural pathways in my brain that I might not even be aware is sabotaging my my efforts.
1: That's a fascinating question. And you know, I think a lot of the one a lot of the habits that are unconscious, you wouldn't want to have to spend any time thinking about. You know, like if you get up in the middle of the night and you just need to walk over to the bathroom well, you don't want to have to be thinking carefully about how do I turn to get out of bed? And how do I put one foot in front of the other? And where is the coffee table? And how do I walk around it? Or how am I going to stub my toe on the side of the bed? Like all of those non-conscious patterns that we have, they just help you operate through the world. And if you had to actually think about every little thing you were going to do throughout the day, it would, you would never be able to do anything. It'd be hard to move even across the room. But there also are all these unconscious thought patterns that we have, these little identities that we carry around with us, these stories that we keep repeating that maybe we don't even know we're we're telling ourselves or realize. And this is another thing that I say in the book, which is the process of behavior change almost always starts with self-awareness because it's really hard to change that story if you don't realize you're telling yourself it every time. Right. And there are different strategies you can use for that. You know, there are some things in the book that are actual like tactics, like the habit scorecard or something like that, where you kind of write all your habits out and analyze them a little bit. That stuff can help. I think also just a process of reflection and review, whatever cadence makes sense for you, whatever that exact process looks like can be unique to you, but making time to think about how you're spending your time and reflecting on whether that represents the values or the identity that you want to build, it's really hard to self-assess stuff without giving yourself time to think. If you're so busy that you don't have any time to sit and relax and maybe stew on it a little bit, it's hard to be self-aware of all those little uh, subtle stories that we're telling ourselves. In my case, I have a period of reflection review at the end of each week. I do like a really short one each Friday. That one's mostly business-related. You know, it's mostly looking at What did I produce? How much traffic, how many email subscribers, revenue expenses, it's just like a spot check for the business for the most part. But then I also have one at the end of each year where I do an annual review and that's much broader. You know, that's like, how many nights did I stay away from home this year while traveling? Was that the right amount? Should that be up or down? Do I need more family time or less? How many workouts did I do this year? Uh, How many on average each month? What were my best lifts throughout the year? How many articles did I write? How many words did I produce this year? Is that what I want to do next year? Or, you know, so you can get the idea. It's customized to you and what you're interested in. But just having those moments of reflection review, I think, help make you more self-aware. And boy, it's really hard to change behavior if you're not aware of it. So that, that process is really important for shaping the habits that you want.
0: Yeah. I love that you share those annual reviews with your readers. They're not just for you. You share sort of the good, the bad, and the changeable <laughs> every <laughs> year. And and they're really fun to read. And it's been fun to see the trajectory since 2018, especially when the book was published. Looking back in, on this last 10-year period, what is the biggest thing that you've changed about yourself after learning all you have about habits?
1: Hmm. I'll give you two. So I think there's, uh, I'll give you something what I think is something big that I have changed for myself, which I don't know if it's the biggest, but it's something big. And then I'll also give you one that hasn't changed, which I think is also interesting. So the thing that hasn't changed is working out has been one of the core habits that my life has been built around for the last 10 years. And I, I genuinely mean this. I don't know that I would be an entrepreneur if I didn't have that one habit. I'm not necessarily saying everybody needs to work out like a bodybuilder or anything like that. Like you can decide what it is for you. But I do think we need some habit that we feel like grounds us, that we feel like is time for us, that you can get away from everything. When I'm in the gym, that is the only hour of the day where I'm not like always kind of thinking about the business in the background or thinking about what I need to do or responsibilities or whatever. That's the only time that I have where it's like truly just me. There have been so many days over the last 10 years where I felt like, man, I really blew that day or we just like didn't get anything effective done or just uh, haven't made any progress. The book is still a mess, uh, but at least I got a good workout in. So that one has kind of been an anchor point for me. And then I do think something that I've grown with is caring less about what other people think and focusing more on, I guess we could just call it trusting myself more or trusting my instincts more. Some of this is going to be natural. Like you're not going to have much to trust yourself on early in your creative career because you haven't produced much yet. And now I've produced a lot more. So I, I know, kind of have a better taste for what works and what doesn't or what's good and what isn't. But I do look back and think it's kind of interesting. For the first two years that I published articles on jamesclare.com, I never shared any of them on Facebook because I didn't want anybody who knew me to see it. I didn't want it to like color their thoughts about me. I was like, well, what if they saw my stupid little blog and thought, oh, I'm surprised he's doing that. I thought he was gonna be doing something more impressive or um, I'm surprised he's spending time on that. Like, I wonder if he has a day job or is this like actually the thing that he's doing is just like writing here. I definitely was like worried about the collective they and what they thought. And looking back now, I'm like, it's kind of silly because if you were to ask me any individual person, you know, like, oh, you're worried about what Sarah thinks. I'd be like, well, no, like she probably isn't, you know, judging me like that. Or are you, you know, are you worried about what like Tony is going to say? Like, no, probably not. Like he would probably be cool about it. But collectively I had this image of like, oh, they will not be impressed by it or they will not think it's good enough. I don't feel that way as much anymore. I think I'm certainly, I'm sure I still fall into that pitfall, but I, I look back on it now and I hope that I've grown a little bit, uh, since then. I think the one thing that helped me get through it and it didn't become uh, an enormous roadblock was that I let that fear or that worry, that concern be the gas pedal and not the brake for my work. Mm -hmm. So because I was worried about what people were gonna think, what I told myself was not, oh, I shouldn't do this or I'm not good enough, or I should just quit. What I told myself was now you really gotta make sure it's good, you know, like "Now, now let's like get to it, you know, like let's start working. And I think that made me put a better effort in. And so the result ended up being great, but I can just as easily imagine a scenario where I tell myself, I don't know what people would think. Like, I'm going to look pretty foolish here. You know, like I'm, I'm going to feel kind of stupid. And so I'm just not going to attempt it. I'd really try to live this way in my life. I don't think I always, I don't always do it, but I, I try to not be my own roadblock. Um, I try to let the world tell me no before I actually tell myself no. And there's not a thousand ways to do anything in life, but there's almost always more than one way. And it's actually very rare that you run into a true hard roadblock where you're like, Hey, the world just says, sorry, there's nothing else you can do. You can't be persistent anymore. There's no other way to try this. You have to give up. That's it's actually very rare to, to get a full stop like that. There's almost always something else you can do some other line of attack to try if you just have the courage to do it. And I think that's something that's changed for me is maybe hopefully I have a little bit more of that creative courage now than I did before. Um, but I'm glad that it didn't stop me early on because I could easily imagine a, a scenario where that would be true.
0: I think a lot of people are glad that didn't stop you. My last question, James, I read that you might be starting a podcast. Is that true?
1: <laughs> Maybe. Uh, the rumors uh, cannot be confirmed or denied. I um <laughs> I think it'd (laughs) be cool. Uh, And we have lots of episodes that we're working on and trying to feel out and figure out. Um, I don't have a launch date for it. And uh, as I am sure uh, you can appreciate, As I said earlier in this conversation, when it looks easy for people, it uh, is probably much more work than you were thinking. So I am learning that right now. It is much, much harder to produce something that you're proud of uh, than maybe you would think on the surface, just listening. So I have a lot to learn and, um, but we'll, I'm definitely still, I'm definitely thinking about it and we're, we're slowly working on it.
0: Excellent. Can't wait to hear it. Thank you so much, James, for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
1: Of course. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, love any chance to talk to you. Thanks, Debbie.
0: Thank you. James Clear's book is titled Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. You can find out more about James Clear and sign up for his weekly newsletter at jamesclear.com or atomichabits.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding Program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.